Hi, my name's Justin. I'm a pessimist in a strange world, scouring Israel to find hope, inspiration, and goodness. Or, in other words, modern-day Lamed Vavnikim, 36 righteous souls who can show us the way. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. She drove all the way from Jerusalem to my apartment in Tel Aviv. I had no idea. I apologized profusely when I found out. I could have come to her. We could have met halfway, but she didn't mind. Worried that she would overtell someone else's story. I could tell that she doesn't do interviews often. And as I offered her coffee, I stole a smile from myself. I had finally found one, a real Lamed Babnikim. Someone who wasn't a CEO or a press-seeking soul, but instead, someone who was comfortable in the shadows, doing the work, not for the fame or the glory, but for, well, what for exactly? There was a story there, and I was eager to uncover it. I handed her coffee, or maybe sparkling water, I don't really remember, but now you're probably thinking that I'm hospitable to these kind souls who venture all the way to my Tel Aviv apartment, so I won't spoil the image. We sat down together on my couch. I asked her if she was ready. She nodded, slightly, and we began. This is my conversation with Shari Mendes. Sherry, welcome to my home. Thank you, Justin. Before we jump into your incredible work, I think a lot of our deepest memories that kind of stay with us throughout life happen when we're really young and we're not fully aware of the reality of things. When was the first time as a kid that you interacted with illness? I actually had a relatively normal childhood. Everybody was healthy. There were no issues. When I was in my early 20s, my father, who was very young, suddenly came home out of the blue with deadly leukemia. And he was told to go home and die. My younger brother was 13, I was in my early 20s, and it was like being hit by lightning. And he went through a terrible time, a year where everybody told him go home and die, but my mother, a Holocaust survivor, said, we're going to get you through this. And she found a doctor who was willing to treat him. She said, did you ever cure one person? And the woman said, of course I've cured one person of this rare cancer. Well, my mother said, if you can cure one person, you can cure two. My mother has an incredible story of survival in the Holocaust, so I think that was her mentality. And my father got through it. He went on to live another 25 years, and he, the protocol they used on him was actually now the protocol for that rare kind of leukemia. And he was called on to talk to people to give them hope. He's actually in textbooks known as Patient A. So my, my feeling is that we can have miracles in illness. So that wow. is my experience. And then fast forward to if you could tell a little more about your personal experience with that and how your father's uh, hope helped guide you during those difficult times. Okay. 
I had been an architect, my husband is a doctor, and we had four happy children in suburban New Jersey. What could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong, yeah. And we always wanted to make Aliyah. And we said at one point, it was during the Intifada, we are done living on the sidelines of history. We have to just go. And our children were teenagers and we had two practices there. And we were very comfortable. Life was good. And it wasn't a popular time to make Aliyah. I think people thought we were out of our minds. A doctor, older kids. We had all the red flags about why it wasn't going to work. And we picked up and we did it. And we moved to Renana, which is a wonderful community. And the first few years were hard. I'm not going to deny it. But we started to work in our professions. And our children are all, thank God, successful and still here. I don't think we would have predicted that if we had looked at those first two years and our families are supportive. But anyway, about um, in 2010, exactly actually 12 years ago this week, I was just living my normal work life. Life was going along. I had teenagers and all of a sudden I went for routine mammogram. No family history, nothing. And I could see on the face of the mammographer in the hospital where my husband works. I was so comfortable, I brought the staff cookies that day. That's how much I wasn't worried that anything had gone wrong. I've always had mammograms, everybody does, routine, like teeth checks. Like it was the last thing I worried about. I don't have a gene or anything. And I could see that something was wrong. And she said, we need to check something. And suddenly I went into that room as a healthy woman with not a care in the world. And suddenly they were doing biopsies and surgeons were coming. My husband was bringing surgeons. They were doing biopsies. And by the end of the day, I was a cancer patient. And that's quite a transformation to go from that in the morning to that in the afternoon. And two days later on Tisha B'Av, I actually got the results that it was definitely cancer. And then it was a very rough year. I have to tell you, when you have cancer, you just think, am I going to live? Especially when you have teenagers, you don't have a whole lot of experience. My father had survived it, but he was a miracle. And I was a young mother, reasonably young mother, and cancer's scary. You hear those words and you're just scared. And I had a lot of faith, but that year was rough. And I want to jump ahead, if it's okay with you, to how the Lemonade Fund came about. So during that year, my focus was just on survival. It's a very rough year. And one of the things that I thought during that whole year was, how do people do this if they don't have enough money? Yeah, we're not very wealthy, we're not poor, but we didn't have to worry about if I have to miss work, I worked through it actually during the year, which was wonderful as an architect, but I kept thinking, what do you do if you're very poor and you can't pay the electric bill or you don't have a babysitter to go to treatment or you miss so much you time. You don't feel well. You don't feel well. And you or your caregiver, your spouse, everybody misses a lot of time from work. You can't pay attention to your children the way you could. You know, what do you do if you're like a pensionaire and you're living on a fixed income and you need uh, to not take three buses in a rod to get to Soroka Hospital in the heat in August. I kept thinking about those things and 
at the end of the year, I didn't tell too many people I was sick because I had an architecture practice and I had my children. Wow. And I didn't want anyone to think she's going to die and not hire me. I was worried about Projects my Projects for architects take a long time. Take a long time. And oh, wow. I was very worried about my practice. And I also didn't want my children. I didn't want to, I didn't want, I, I didn't want the pity. I was worried about that. You and told your children or you didn't? I told my children. I told my immediate family. But I didn't go public to the community because I'm a private person. I was a private person. And I thought, you know, this is my business. It's my health. And I'm just going to get through this. But as the year went on, I thought, thought about economic viability during illness began to really weigh on me. And when I would be in waiting rooms, I would see people who were in rags, and it was really hard. And my husband, because he was on staff at hospitals, I, I got friendly with social workers at hospitals. And I asked them, I said, would it make sense to make some sort of a charity for people so that they can have a roshaket, peace of mind, while they're sick? Just during that first year, because that's when uh, breast cancer treatment is one of the longest periods of treatment in uh, all of cancers. It's actually the most common cancer in the world the most common in women and the most common occurring cancer in the world is particularly common in Israel because there's so many Ashkenazi Jews and there's a gene mutation, the BRCA1 and 2, which has a much higher prevalence in Ashkenazi Jews, 1 in 40 in Ashkenazi Jews as opposed to 1 in 500 in the general population. And so we actually have a lot of breast cancer here and that tends to sometimes hit younger people and younger people are having young families and I just kept thinking of the impact of this. And I, I went and I met with a social worker. I had done some research about these kinds of charities. And there's a thing called a Breast Cancer Emergency Relief Fund. And they exist in other countries and they didn't have one in Israel. And it's just to give people emergency grants to get them through this period, just if they don't have enough money. Um, you'd be surprised. I didn't know. I had no, you know, until you're in it, you don't think about this. And I began to see that there are people who live on 3,500 shekels a month. The poverty line in Israel is about 8,500 shekels for a family with two children. But there are old age pensioners who live on 3,500 a month. And as long as there's no bumps in the road, they can do it. But the minute you need an extra taxi occasionally, or you need some elder care, or child care, or formula because you can't breastfeed, how do you do that? And they don't have any wiggle room. Also, a lot of the families who are marginal in the socioeconomic situation in Israel, some of them have other problems. You know, they got there because they're divorced, they're single parents, they're widows, there's crime sometimes in the family, there's uh, psychiatric illnesses, there's disability in a spouse. And we do, thank God, have a wonderful medical system here in Israel. And we do have Bituach Lumi, the National Insurance Institute. But that, that does the basics. It's like Social Security in America. It's not enough for extra, really. And it's the difference between getting through this with terrible stress, financial stress, or getting through it with, I can breathe and I'm not afraid to go get checked because I might lose my job. It's, it could even be life-saving. But anyway, I asked a social worker, do you think this makes sense in Israel? She said, I'm going to tell you a story. She said, there's a woman that we get in the waiting room periodically, and she smells terrible, and people won't sit with her, and we have to clear out the waiting room when she comes. And I said, why does she smell so terribly? And she said, she's an immigrant, and she can't afford a washing machine, and she's going through chemotherapy, and she's vomiting all the time, and she vomits on herself, and she doesn't have the energy to wash her clothing, 
So she comes in filthy just because she doesn't have a washing machine. So I said to the social worker, we're doing it. We're starting this. And I said, we'll get her a washing machine. (laughs) We did. We got her a washing machine. And the story is at the end of a year, which was exactly a year to the date after that mammogram, a year to the date, exactly. It was August 7th, 2011. I had an evening in my backyard. And I had missed my 50th birthday because I was in the middle of treatment. And I was upset about that. And I I sent out an invitation to everyone I knew in the country, basically. We had a lot of friends by then and acquaintances. And I said, this is what happened to me last year. And I put lemons all over the invitation. I said, I'm going to make lemonade out of lemons. And I'm going to turn this bad situation into good. Tishabav is a time, doesn't only have to be destruction, we can make it into reconstruction. And we're going to start this charity. And will you come and will you help me? And so we had a full house and we raised enough money to start the charity. And that was 12 years ago. And thank God I'm fine. Thank God, thank, thank God. God. But that's how the Lemonade Fund started. Wow. And we've just celebrated our 10 year anniversary. So a lot of organizations or foundations, something that's always on bold on the website is we do not make grants to people. Obviously, in a broad sense, right? Like that may make sense, but it doesn't make sense for obviously the Lemonade Fund. Why do you think it's so critical that money goes directly to people and not to organizations to help people? That is such a great question. It was very important to me when we started this that we have a very vigilant system of who we give money to. And we made social workers our partners. We go to hospitals and we train social workers in either the health funds or the hospitals. This was, unfortunately, Corona interrupted the online training, but hopefully we'll get back to that. And we want them to be our eyes so they can help pick out the people. A lot of these people have been poor their whole lives. Some of them have fallen into poverty. There's a statistic that shows that People who have a very serious illness within six months can slide into bankruptcy. That's how serious a hit economically a serious illness can be to families all over the world. Thank God our health system is not expensive for us. We have socialized medicine here, but there are these ancillary costs. So we want people to have freedom, to have the money, to use it as they need it. And there are people who will say to us, what if they use it for drinking? What if they use it for drugs? To be honest with you, our people who we give grants to are very carefully vetted. There are three criteria for people who we give to. First of all, the application has to come through a social worker. So she already knows that they're in treatment and she's seen them and she's talked to them. That's a very good partnership that we have. They have to be within the first year of treatment because we want to get people and help them while they're at their most critical need. And they have to be citizens, anyone who has a blue two dots of hoot in Israel who can be treated in an Israeli hospital. And they Which have... is basically like the social security number, but less scary. Yes, yes. <laughs> we all use our uh, identity number here, two dots of hoot, a lot. Yeah. Our blue identity card. When you order Thai food to when you go to the doctor. <laughs> right. We use it all the time, very publicly. Mm-hmm. Everyone overhears it. <laughs> no <Yeah>. big deal. <laughs> and the third thing is they, yeah. they have to prove financial need. So those three things, and you know, we we get feedback from social workers and from patients, and by and large, people are using it for staples. These people, if they had the money to waste it, they would not even 
get to us. These are people who need this for taxis, for childcare. Right. I, I have to say that one of the reasons it was also very important to me to do this was because I saw that there are people who don't get checked the very poor people early on in the fund. We had an application from a young Ethiopian mother, a single mother, and she had left a very violent husband with three young children. She went to live with her sister and she was in desperate situation and she supported the family, including the sister and the young children by being a supermarket shelf stalker. She, had a, she made very little money, but that was all the money they had and she was not in danger anymore. Her family was safe but she was the sole provider. And one day she felt a lump in her breast. And it does happen sometimes more often in the Ethiopian population for some reason. She felt a lump and she, she was in denial because she kept saying, what will my family do if I can't support them? And we see that a lot. People are in denial. And she kept denying it and she didn't go to get checked and it grew and grew and grew. And eventually she got very sick and she went to the hospital and we awarded her a Lemonade Fund grant. And at that time there were checks, we sent the check and it got sent back. And that had never happened before. So we called the sister and we said, why did you send the check back? And she said, she died and it's not ours. And we said, we were sending you your money back. It's made out to her. We wrote a new check to the sister. We said, please use it for the children, for you. Of course, it's your money. But that was Nafaleta uh, Asimon. A light bulb went out on in my head early on and I said, we have to make this fund the safety net in Israel where people know that if they get sick, somebody's worried about them. A lot of the letters we get from people, the thank you letters we get unsolicited, you were thinking of us. Somebody was worried about us. It's not just the money, it's the care. I want people to know that if they get sick, they don't have to be so nervous about money so that they'll go get checked because I feel that if they know that, they might go get checked earlier, and then that might save lives. Uh, breast cancer, um, there are about 4,900 cases a year in Israel, and about 900 people a year die from breast cancer in Israel, and that number hasn't changed much, although it is improving because of early screening, but I want people to know that if you go get checked earlier, your chance of a much lesser ordeal with dealing with cancer. They don't always say a cure because breast cancer can recur, but you're much closer, a 90% chance of it not recurring or coming back or killing you is maybe, I'm not a doctor, but yeah. is if you get checked early. So our motivation is to try to get people checked early. Wow. And you're a registered Amuta in Israel, a nonprofit in Israel recognized by the Israeli government. Yes. Did you face any hurdles to qualify? Why you're giving to individuals and not to other Amutot or other like vendors, etc.? And like, how did you, because it's a very non-traditional type of philanthropy, because in America, people would say, obviously, taxes here is very different. You have to give everyone a 1090 or whatever it is, you know? Right, right. To, here, you're just giving out, you're, you're giving out funds to people who need it, and they're not working for you, they're not providing you a service, it's charity direct to the person. How did you fight through to make that happen legally with the Azanamuta? And then also, how do you balance any challenges that donors or foundations or philanthropists could say, we don't usually do this? You right. Know? 
Right. You know, you're very right. That is a question that sometimes people ask. It's not so traditional, and people often want to give to something that helps growth or helps awareness about breast cancer. I tried to talk to other breast cancer organizations to see if they wanted to give financial aid, bigger cancer organizations. Do you want an arm in your organization? There are many organizations that give advice, they give legal advice, they have support groups. But bottom line, if you have breast cancer and you don't have enough money to put food on the table for your family, you don't need a support group. You need money to feed your family. That's your first worry. And so I was able to get through that by showing people that we have a very, very rigorous application system. The way our our application works, it's um, a long application. We have once a month meetings with a committee of volunteers who come from a lot of professions. A lot of them are cancer survivors. And we go through applications with the meeting anonymously. And we actually have a point system, so it's not subjective how we award grants. Somebody who has, for example, stage four breast cancer with seven children who has no income, all of those items, those circumstances will award that person more points than if they are just okay but having a bit of a tough time during cancer. They're in a stable marriage. So I think our... uh, there, there is a model for a breast cancer emergency fund that gives directly to people. So it's not like we created this model. There is a model for giving yeah. a grant to patients to get through the disease with a little bit of ease. Yeah. I have these memories of, as a kid, the Susan G. Coleman race for a cure. And it was nice. Some people said it was so inspiring and they raised so much money for cancer research. And I'm sure a lot of it goes to that. But it, it was always very like, I always would think as a kid, so all this money just goes to the researchers? Um, what about the people now? Uh, we've had people who've donated to us who've yeah. said to us, we want to give to you because it's not going into the millions for research. Right. That first of all, not enough of that research money, this is a common complaint, goes to metastatic disease, which is what's really killing breast cancer patients. And how much of that actually reaches the patient? People have donated to us saying, We want to donate to you specifically because your money, we know it's going to go directly to the patient. We also don't rent offices. We are a very, very low overhead charity. Scrap is a good word. (laughs) No, we don't even have print items. Everything's online. We We want our money to go directly to the people. So... I believe in the money going directly to the people because they really need it to get yeah. through the disease. So, How many people in the past year have you guys given funds to? So our numbers have gone up and up and up. This last month, we've given close to 40 a month. The number in the beginning of the year was about 25. So a month. A month yes. So, you know, I have to be honest with you. There are people who don't need our money. So we are very careful to only give to the poorest of people. There are other people who can get by. So we're careful. We'd rather also, my, my goals are yeah. to be able to help more people, to, to reach more people. Like I would love to expand. We are starting to expand beyond breast cancer because uh, a doctor at a very well-known hospital here said to me, breast cancer patients are actually, thank God, because of research, doing better. What about other patients, pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer? There are other cancers, lung cancer, where people are not doing as well, and they need a fund like this too. And I said, but we're the breast cancer fund, the lemonade fund, why not? So I would love to become the address in Israel 
for more cancers, women's cancers, cancers that are related to women's, the women's gene, some men, 1% of breast cancers occur in men. So we, we've given out the other, we want to grow in numbers, but I'd also like to grow in the amount that we're giving, because there are some people, if we can, we're starting, if we can give them a few months rent. Yeah. That is much more impactful. We had a story recently of a man who had breast cancer. I think we've had less than 10 men over 10 years. That's how rare it is. And don't forget, we need the men who are financially insecure. So it's an even smaller number. The man who uh, has been sick, he wrote us a letter. He said, I've been sick with breast cancer for six years. I just got this letter a few months ago. And he said, I'm now stage four and I need surgery. And I went into the hospital and I was in the hospital for six months. And I couldn't go home. Why couldn't I go home? It was a financial reason. I live on the fourth floor, and they can't get me up to the fourth floor without an elevator. And I need a special hospital bed or a special wheelchair. And if I could just move to a lower floor, I could be home with my daughter and my three-year-old. And we did. We got him funding to move to a different apartment, moving costs, a few months' rent, money for uh, some furniture. And he said, I am now able to live out my, his prognosis is not good, live out my life with my friends and my family in my backyard. So that's the kind of impact I want to have. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. What lesson do you think from your childhood and from your parents who I can tell had a big impact on you? What lesson do you think drives you, drives this organization and drives the vision which the need is there, but a lot of people try to ignore the need because it's a little too, well, they could just take care of it. I need to credit my parents for this because they were people who thought outside the box. My mother was a Holocaust survivor whose father said one day in Slovakia, we have to run. When no one else was running, most people said it's going to pass. And they ran. They saw a problem and they said, we have to solve it. And they survived by hiding in this place and that place, ultimately in the woods. My mother was one of the very few child survivors from Slovakia. It's very rare. There were very few of those. And I think it was because they learned how to live outside the box. My mother was innovative when it came to her careers. She changed careers many times. My father, at a very young age, lost his father and immediately swooped in and helped his family. They both taught us that you have to think outside the box. And they were also very charitable. And they taught us if there's a problem, you need to think what you can do. You can't stand outside. And my last question is, what's one line of Torah or Talmud or a song or a poem, English, Hebrew, Spanish, Portuguese, that sits with you when you need it most in this journey? So I have to admit there's one that stands out more than any other. It's uh, in the Halotacha, in Bamidbar, and it's V'yatzak Moshe El Hashem Lemor El Na Refanala. Moses cries out to God, And he says, please, God, heal her now. And very few sentences in the Torah sound like that. Monosyllabic, it's guttural. It's from his body. Moshe doesn't often talk like that. His sister had just become very ill with leprosy, I believe. She looked ill. And her Aaron, the three of the three siblings were standing there. And Aaron cries out to Moshe, something like, we can't, we don't want her to die. And Moshe turns to God and he says, please, God, heal her now. And I think that that is a sentence in the Torah that is how we all speak and feel about illness. 
We can't find the words. All we can say is, please, God, heal us now. That's how I felt when I was sick. I couldn't, I, I'm sometimes eloquent, but I wasn't then. Yeah. I just said, please. And I think that that is what people have to know. Even Moshe, who is a very eloquent man, that was the words he could get out when it came to being fearful about illness. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for your work. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. There was a softness, a warmth to Sherry that I admired. She held her work close to her. She wasn't looking for notoriety. She was looking for the next woman in need of her, in need of the hope Shari found in her own story and now uses to help others in dire situations, in scary situations, and in situations where a void or a need can't be completely abolished. But with Sherry, it can be mended. Like all things, you can't predict the outcome. But with Sherry on your side, the odds are much, much stronger. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi. And our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zain. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon.